0: Welcome to the Relax, It's Retirement podcast with Josh Leonard from Leonard Advisory Group. In this podcast, we help those nearing retirement greet it with a well-prepared smile. Join Josh and his guests to learn the retirement and tax planning tips you need so you too can live your golden years with the happiness and excitement you deserve. Hear stories from his years of experience to help you transition into a fun and intentional retirement. Now, onto the show.
1: Hello and welcome to the Relax It's Retirement Podcast with your host, Josh Leonard, where we talk about transitioning into retirement with intent. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hi, Josh.
2: Hi, Wendy. How are you today?
1: I am good. Now, who do we have with us?
2: Today, we have Pete Belcastro, CFP, from our team on today to talk about some predictions and kind of recap some of the market activity from last year. So welcome, Pete.
3: Thanks. Great to be back. Hi, Wendy.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us. Absolutely. All right, Josh, so what are we going to be talking about?
2: Well, we're going to talk exclusively about frogmen today. Frogmen were men predicted to, and and possibly women, I guess as well, that were to live in undersea bunkers and tend to kelp farms. So in 1990, or 1966, rather, the Rand Corporation had made this uh, prediction that with potential food shortages and the increasing need for a larger food supply that kelp could be one of our our primary food staples and that we would have these frogmen or it would be an occupation to live underwater and uh, help grow kelp in underwater kelp farms.
1: For people to eat, not fish.
2: For people to eat. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you know what? This reminds me of a little bit like the Lion King when he has to start eating the grubs. <laughs>
2: OK, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Yet
1: satisfying or that's
2: fishy. like when um, the 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 evil uncle takes over and it becomes a, a... oh, oh, you're saying when he's with uh, Timon and Pumbaa and they're eating bugs.
1: I would say you have kids. You have to do
2: them Oh, line. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty well. I, I could sing if you need me to.
1: Oh, well. oh, um, please do.
2: no, we'll save that for another. Oh, we you. We got to keep it short today. Oh. <laughs>
3: it sounds about just as appetizing though
2: (laughs) yeah yeah but you know i know pete for for you listeners i know that pete is a huge fan of brussels sprouts so this kelp (laughs) probably falls in that same category right pete
3: i i feel punished every time i have to look at them you know
2: (laughs) But, uh, you know, the thought from the Rand Corporation was that kelp was a rich in protein plant that was sort of easy to grow. So this would be a great way to help increase the food supply. One of their other predictions in the same article had that uh, spouses would be able to secretly control one another's moods with grouch pills. That hasn't happened. Now, granted, we do have, you know, I guess like Adderall, Prozac, some some other drugs that have come onto the market that maybe help overall with moods, but um maybe a glass of wine, but we had that back in 1966 <laughs> as well. But, you know, these predictions are pretty amusing to think about today. But when we look into the future, we always try to draw some sort of assumptions or think that a trend is going to take things one way or the other. But I think what history has repeatedly taught us is that, well, that's not always true. I think uh, another one that I pulled up from Irving Fisher in 1929, Uh, he was quoted in October of 1929. Keep in mind, this is a Yale economist, so presumably way smarter than I am. Uh, He predicted that stock prices may have reached a permanently high plateau. Three days later, the stock market crashed, which was the beginning of the Great Depression. Needless to say, stocks neither permanently plateaued or permanently fell, in fact, they've they've trended up over the long term since then, believe it or not. And uh, But that's not to say that there weren't cycles along the way. So sometimes having this grandiose prediction is not the, the most direct way to go. I think uh, when we look back even over the last year, if we look at the top analyst predictions, 23 of the top analyst predictions for 2023, they had an average price target on the S&P 500, of about 4,080, the S&P actually ended 17% higher, um, at almost 4,800. So oh. even some of the highest-paid analysts or the smartest people in the room, so to speak, are are not able to accurately predict the future. You know, I think Pete has spent a lot of time digesting the market and analyst reports over, uh, you know, the last year. Uh, so he has a little bit more data than just that one high-level number for us. Um, so, Pete, I'll turn it over to you here. What what were some I, of the factors that were predicted or assumed to happen last year that didn't quite flesh out the same?
3: Absolutely, yeah. There was definitely a few things. I mean, I don't think anything, um, uh, nothing too shocking, like we're changing how our diets are, like eating kelp or anything. I mean, my wife does uh, make me eat those kale chips uh, every once in a while. So that might be close. So we might be... Uh, might be not too far away from the, uh, uh, the, the frog bin here. Uh, but uh, last year, I think, um, you know, everybody saw, uh, you know, how how 2022 end, uh, you know, hey, the market was down about, uh, you know, geez, over 18%. You know, there's certain indicators that economists were looking at, like you said, a bunch of, you know, people crunching all these numbers and uh, the probability of recession. You know, a lot of people don't know, but there's charts um, about just about every, part of our economy. And uh, you put together these ideas and the probability of a recession last year, um, there's a whole index around this. Um, it w- There's a 44% chance of recession. Um, to kind of put that in perspective before uh, the 2000, uh, you know, downturn, uh, the probability of a recession was um, just over 25%. Um, so, uh, so people thought that the, the sky was going to fall. You know, I don't know if you, did you feel that way, Josh, uh, at the beginning of the year there?
2: I'm I'm sort of an eternal optimist. So I, I always try to say, hey, you know, there's good things going on. And, you know, 2022, now granted, I have hindsight bias now, 2022 was a particularly bad year, which means that it's quite easy to make positive growth from there.
3: <laughs> you got it. Yeah. But the numbers were saying that, hey, we probably shouldn't expect that. Um, so, uh, so why didn't that recession happen? Why didn't the, you know, things go down? Why wasn't there a reset? Well, uh, there's a there's a few different, uh, you know, factors. Uh, obviously, the one, you know, being that uh, the economy was actually adding jobs. So we know that there's a big piece of the puzzle that, uh, you know, if anybody heard about interest rates or the Fed, a lot of those numbers come from, uh, you know, the jobs report. So every month of last year, more jobs were added to the economy. So there was two and a half million jobs that were added over 2023, which is a huge number, and that just capped off a 36 straight month of employment gain. You know, so people were still hiring even though they were saying that there was re- there was a recession coming. When people were working, you can't really have a recession. They there was actually uh, inflation. Uh, we all know that. You know you. Good or bad, inflation was a real thing. We didn't see it for a while, um, but we actually saw inflation uh, pull back uh, for nine consecutive months. So from pretty much June to May, we saw uh, from June 2022 to May 23, we saw inflation starting to pull back and starting to normalize, starting to level out. So whenever you take that full step back and say, hey, when did the market bottom? It was actually in October of 22 um, to... The end of last year, the market return for that point is 31% return. So
2: I'll take it, Pete. Make it happen every year. Okay? That's
3: it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, so pretty, so once you start looking at those numbers, you're like, wow, it must have been a pretty easy year, it must have been pretty good. Um, so some of the challenges that happened last year, they're actually we know about a few things as far as you know, wars either starting or continuing last year. Um, But one thing that did happen is there were a few bank failures, you know, some there's sometimes, uh, you know, bank failures every year, little banks that we don't hear about. But there were three big ones last year. Um, So we had a signature bank, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, First Republic Bank. Those were three bank failures that happened last year. And they're actually the three of the largest per dollar amount. You know, I'll give you the largest one here, Josh and, and Wendy. The largest one was uh, Washington Mutual in 2008. And that was 307 billion dollars. I don't know if you can wrap your head around that, but uh,
1: oh, I got that in the bank.
3: It got that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good so for you, Wendy. <laughs> in 2008, yeah, that was huge. So, before last year, the next largest bank failure was 40 billion. Okay, so you got 300 billion, you got 40 billion. So why am I bringing this up? Because last year the the out of the three, the lowest amount was 118 billion dollars was the the assets on the bank that failed. So, yeah, so that's over like a, twice as much. Yeah. You know, as almost that,
2: three, almost uh, three you, times as big. Yeah.
3: You got it. The next up Silicon Valley Bank, 209 billion. First Republic cacked out at $229 billion. So pretty much three out of the four largest bank failures happened last year. So that's something that a lot of us don't, uh, you know, we really weren't aware that they were that large. We saw when they first happened, but none of those people lost their deposits. The system moved in, the assets were, you know, divvied up, but nobody really felt that. It wasn't a, a big scare like it was, you know, during the great Great Depression let's just say, yeah. back in the 30s.
1: And how does that affect the economy and people, typically? Like, how has it affected them in the past as compared to this past year?
2: Yeah, That's so true. I think one of the pieces that that sort of prop things up quite quickly is the government came in quickly and said that they are covering deposits. And we have, you know, if you go to the bank, right, hopefully your bank has a little FDIC plaque postered all over the place, right? So there are limits uh, that they'll guarantee up to. Well, those were exceeded for depositors. I think in particularly for Silicon Valley Bank, which really helped reassure the system. Now I know from our advisor role, we certainly heard a lot of concern from clients because even if your money's backed up, it's quite an inconvenience to switch a bank for one or for two, if you have all your bills auto-drafted and all of a sudden the bank's gone, you might not be paying your bills on time. So That being said, there's an inconvenience, but in terms of the economy or collapsing the economy, the FDIC did its job, right? The government backstops came in and helped support. Now, still, while we were going through those, I think you could meet with a lot of people and say, oh my gosh, the risk of bank failure, this is going to tear down the whole economy. Now that we look back over time, well, we got through that pretty quickly overall. And I think that that's really one of the most amazing things, you know, as Pete said, these are three out of the four biggest bank failures ever. And we had a positive year in the stock market.
1: I'm just curious, does does that mean that the U.S. government paid that money to the depositors? Or is that the insurance? Like, it's-
2: well, it's yeah, it's technically the insurance. So part of FDIC and Pete, maybe you even have a little bit more knowledge in regards to how the FDIC insurance, the insurance takes the claim. How that insurance is set up, I would I would assume is based off of all the member banks are paying so much towards it over time. Is that a correct assumption? Pete? That's,
3: yeah, that's right. Certain amount of deposits, uh, you know, that that are kept. And I think that when you start looking at these, uh, these banks, whenever they do, you know, fail or go down, what happens is they are usually taken over by another bank as well, you know, so another institution steps up, you know, they work out things with the government, uh, but the other bank job really is to secure those assets, uh, you know, that were guaranteed. You know, so there's lots of ins and outs and Jace, and um, I mean you you can go into it forever there, but uh, like Josh said, the bottom line is it does work and they were able to extend that insurance above the 250 per you know per account title there.
2: Which I think moving forward brings an interesting piece in. Are people going to assume that that's always going to be the case? Um, I would say don't follow that assumption. What I have seen is now there are some banks that are partnering with other banks to help you exceed that limit. So on some banks' websites or other financial institutions, you'll see guaranteed up to a million or maybe $2 million. And what they're doing is they're sharing that with another bank. So while you might have one bank account, they're actually saying, okay, well, 250,000 of this account is actually backed up by this other bank. So they're kind of sharing in that insurance there. That's a new thing that's kind of come about with these more recent bank failures. We'll see. I would say, being prudent, if you have more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a bank account, let's try to split it up so that it is fully insured by the FDIC.
3: Yeah, yeah. There is, uh, like, like we talked about, nobody lost their money there, but there is a factor that uh, you, you know, you um, know, you probably don't want to uh, leave in somebody else's hand, and that is the time frame. You know, you don't want to be sitting there waiting and waiting and not knowing whenever you're going to get your funds so um but yeah so like like we said it's something that wasn't on our you know it didn't affect the market very well you know very much because it was taken care of and it wasn't something that was on a lot of people's talking points at the end of the year for that matter you know and i think another big takeaway is that we had the um you know the big seven stocks uh, from last year that really took and ran them with the market you know and they're in the tech sector uh you know so we're talking about apple and meta microsoft amazon google tesla and that nvidia uh, i'm sure people were talking about that you know the you know mid uh, mid last year uh so those seven stocks actually made up about ninety eight percent of the total returns that of the year there, the other company, the other 493 companies in the S and P uh, you know, they're, they were still up, obviously not as great as those seven there. So, so we had, Pete,
2: what I'm hearing is that we should just invest all of our money into Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Tesla, and Nvidia, correct? Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, Gosh, if you could go backwards, uh, you know, just in the past year, that would, uh, that would probably make sense, but.
2: But they're the top companies. That's right. <laughs>
3: That's right. Uh,
2: and I am joking a bit, but this is something that that happens, right? We have its recency bias where we say, hey, these companies have done great. Let's only buy those. I think more practically, if you look at this, you can say, well, hey, I can get a more even, even return by investing and in diversifying. We can weight a little heavier in certain companies that we think might do really, really well. But Netflix is one that we've seen get cut in half. Multiple years, so unless you're prepared for your whole retirement savings to cut in half, don't invest that way.
1: What are the chances, though, that Apple and Amazon are going to go down significantly at this point? I mean, I can understand why Netflix would go down, you know, but, but really, a- Apple and Amazon?
2: But uh, have you heard of a company called General Electric, Wendy? <laughs> <laughs> Or Enron, perhaps?
1: These were
2: also darlings of the stock market at one point, right? You no, know, <laughs> We don't know, right? We, we well, can predict, Wendy, but there's no guarantees. Gotcha.
3: And IBM, that's another
1: one. IBM,
2: too. Yeah, yeah.
3: That's it. All
2: right, guys. Sorry. That's,
3: no, they're definitely... I mean, you... Looking back there, it does seem like there was a lot of, uh, you know, upside potential there, but you are, you know, you are pretty much pigeonholing yourself in a few positions that, uh, yeah, a lot of, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big change to stomach because before that return, those, those positions, they were down over 50%, you know? So, uh, we try and keep that in perspective that even though last year, we saw some great returns whenever, you know, in 2002, uh, you know, those those overall positions were down over 50%, about 50, 40, yeah, 47, almost 50% there. So
2: yeah, and I think Pete, from our perspective, that is a hard thing often to coach clients through, right? They want to invest in all these companies, they get a good return. And then um, a year like 2022 into 2023, they're down, about 50% in those stocks, then they don't want to hold them, they sell them off, buy something more conservative, and then those stocks take off, right? And it's like, oh, well, why did I do that, right? So we need to be able to curb the investor behavior there as well.
3: You got it. You got it.
2: Yep. So, you know, looking forward, Pete, we know everything for the next year, right? And that's (laughs) what we're going to share on this podcast. We know exactly what you should know. Of course we don't. When we look at the top analyst predictions for 2024, the average is somewhere around 4,832 on the S&P 500, or the predictions that it's going to stay pretty flat. Uh, there's some uh, investment groups like Oppenheimer who are targeting, you know, about nine percent growth, or the S&P going to about 5,200, and some are more pessimistic, like J.P. Morgan Chase. Who's predicting about a 12% loss on the S&P for the year, or a price target of 4,200? So those are kind of all over the map there, and that's that's looking yeah. at 14 different sort of high-profile companies that spend an awful lot of money to try to predict this. And well, negative 12 to positive nine is a pretty big range uh, for <laughs> me. Uh, so you know, we'll take it all with a grain of salt, but I think what we're seeing there the trend is well the assumptions that it's pretty flat now keep in mind last year they were off by uh, about 17 percent
3: that's right that's right yeah it's it's whenever you start looking at these analysis and you got one that says hey it's going to be up you got one that says it's going to be down you got one that says it's not going to change you know as investors what do we do
2: yeah yeah, and I think Pete, there's a lot of factors. You know, I think a big one that that we're going to hear a lot. We've already heard some grumblings is the presidential election, right? You
3: um, got it. Big year here at the U.S.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly all political affiliations aside, there's going to be a lot of volatility socially around that. You know, what tends to happen is we have. One party think they have the solution to everything and the other party thinks the other one's evil and it goes back and forth perpetually. I think, Pete, you had pulled some stats in terms of historically what has happened.
3: Yeah, you got it. Uh, you know, whenever, whenever a Republican has been elected in the market, it has gone up about 15.3%. Democrat was elected, not as good, 7.6%. But we take a look overall... It's about 11.28% return the year after uh, a presidential election.
2: So hang tight for this year, and then you'll make about 11% next year, right? You
3: got it. You got it.
2: <laughs> but Now, of course, these are historical averages. So this means there is no prescription for what will happen this year. But I think many times people are overly pessimistic that it's going to be the end of the world. And I always will joke, I'm pretty sure... Apple's not going to stop making iPhones, right? Because a Republican or a Democrat was elected president, right? They're going to figure out whatever the sentiment of the current political landscape is, and do their best to make a profit during that time period.
3: You got it. So yeah, so historically, the numbers are on our side there, Um, you know, whenever it comes to a presidential election. So it's, you know, we, we, Definitely. I wouldn't say you wouldn't experience any, uh, you know, volatility, but we're definitely seeing, uh, you know, some volatility already this year, but, you know, but that is a good, uh, you know, a good headwind or tailwind that we have there. That's going to c- kind of push us through here. Um, you know, so that's just one factor that we saw. What are you some know, p- optimistic positive or factor?
2: positive? Yeah. What are some positive things you see coming? The,
3: the other positive is, um, is the rates, the interest rates. So um, everybody saw this year, the interest rates were climbing and climbing. And, uh, you know, the Fed finally started talking uh, a little bit more dovishly or uh, that they might actually start to pull back rates. You know, so that's going to help the economy. Anytime when money gets a little bit cheaper um, or people can borrow money for a little bit less, it, it's, it tends to help things out. We're not, of course, analysts are being pretty conservative. So they're not seeing, a, you know, we, we had such a huge increase there. Uh, you know, uh, of the, the rate increases, it's not going to drop the same way, uh, you know, so instead of going up, you know, three, 4%, it's probably going to just uh, pull back maybe about 1%. So right now that uh, Wall Street, they do believe that the Fed is going to cut interest rates, but they still are any anytime when the market is doing well, and, uh, you know, they're adding jobs, The the Fed doesn't seem to want to cut interest rates, so so we'll see. Um, So that's one one uh, you know factor that should help the market is interest rates being uh, you know cut. Uh, Another factor is that there is a record amount of money on the sidelines. So we saw in last year there was actually over uh, one trillion dollars that were moved. into money market funds, so I'm not saying maybe that they were sold off of the stock market, or maybe they are in CDs or other assets. But we saw an inflow of over a trillion dollars into money markets. You know, that's an easy decision to make whenever interest rates are up like this. But uh, you know, obviously that doesn't last, uh, you know, forever. So we see a lot of a lot of cash on the sideline that is going to need somewhere to go. Uh, you know, especially whenever interest rates uh, start uh, start to normalize again.
2: Yeah, Pete, I think we we tend to see it with clients, too. You know, last year was a time where it paid you to put money in savings. For a long time, you haven't earned anything to keep money in savings. So, you know, that makes sense that a lot of that money stayed in money market accounts. You know, I think with the positive appreciation of the S&P last year, if things tend to be on a good foot, too, and interest rates are are dropping slightly, people might reevaluate and start to put some of that money in help carry the market along there a little bit more. I think one of the other things we had talked about, Pete, was just the supply chain, right? So ever since COVID, we've heard about the supply chain, right? There's a shortage of this, there's a shortage of this, that, and the other. And I I think one of the things that we had brought up is that it seems to be normalizing a little bit more now. So uh, maybe some of those factors of being able to get a vehicle when you want one or, you know, even maybe more basic needs like eggs that also went crazy in price for a little bit due to a shortage. Hopefully some of that starts to ease a little bit more.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing some good things, you know, not only are they, uh, you know, kind of normalizing, but uh, we're finding that they're actually a lot more solid. You know, the supply chains are a lot stronger.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, I think a lot of companies evaluated having multiple partners in their supply chain to help make it more stable over time. So hopefully now with those networks set up, it creates more stability in the future if we have international conflicts or disruptions in our supply chain overall. Yeah, I think one of the other things that that Pete and I had talked about prior to jumping on Wendy was just, we need time when we're invested, right? We don't ever want to assume that all these positive factors we just went through, or we could certainly spend a whole podcast listing negative factors as well. We don't know what they're going to do. We need to be invested for a longer period of time. In general, it doesn't make sense to put the money you're going to take to the grocery store on Saturday in the stock market on Monday, right? We want to have that longer time line, really depending uh, on your exact asset allocation, we're looking for five to 10 years, if we're investing heavily in stocks, to be getting that appreciation. If we look at a very, very short timeline, well, we could have anywhere from a 24 to 25% chance of losing money during a one-year time period. So we wanna stay away from that. I think for most folks that listen to the show that are nearing or in retirement, we wanna make sure we're bucketing our money appropriately if we think back to two thousand eight, a lot of clients were very panicked in that time and would say, "Hey, I want to put all my money in cash. I'm going to wait it out a little bit, and then I'll reinvest when things calm down." And you know, Morningstar has this great chart that goes through the value of investing. and Pete, do you want to run through some of those figures that they have on that chart there?
3: Yeah, if you so two thousand eight, you're like, "I'm done with this. I'm putting the money in cash. Just give me whatever." You know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm put it in the, the money market, put it in a CD. Um, so if you had $100,000 um, today, you would have $140,000. So, hey, made some money, right? You know, so uh, worth more than it was. And, and I guess you could be happy. And then you kind of take a look and say, well, what if I would have, uh, uh, you know, actually moved it into cash for one year and then I went into the market. So if you held off. Um, and just for one year in cash, and then you went into the market. You said, "Fine, everything's going well again. I feel more comfortable." That one hundred thousand dollars would have turned into four hundred and ninety-seven thousand dollars. So, still pretty good. You know, hey, you timed it a little bit, but you still had four almost five hundred thousand. So, the third scenario here would be, you didn't time the market. You stayed invested. You. You rode out the storm just like you probably had to do before. So that one hundred thousand dollars would be worth eight hundred and eighteen thousand today. So that's just based on the S and P five hundred versus cash. So one hundred forty thousand to eight hundred and eighteen thousand. Uh, you know, Wendy, so... which one
2: do you choose? A, B, or C?
1: Um, I'm going to take the one where I make the most money. <laughs> we'll,
2: we'll, <laughs> we'll call, that A. We'll call right. that A. That's <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: That's right. And sometimes that's really tough, tough to see. And and we like to put things in perspective. So, uh, you know, whenever we have any doubt, we like to zoom out. So just, Hey, you you might have a, a, that might not look really good in the short term here, but what does it look like when we start taking that 30,000 foot view? What does it look like whenever we start, you know, taking into, uh, you know, factors that are years and and decades long, instead of just months or years long.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Historically, the market always bounces back. So should we assume it will bounce back eventually?
3: You know, like like we talked about, there's analysts that say, you know, pretty much it's up, down, or not moving at all. You know, one of our analysts, analysts here at Morningstar, you know, believes that, that the economy is going to start to return to a more boring and stable place you know, things recovering from, uh, from the pandemic and, and you know, things normalizing, uh, you know, so that was his kind of, you know, his short take. And another analyst just said that, hey, there's a lot of noise out there. We understand there's a lot of uncertainty. Oh my gosh, you're talking about war. You're talking about gas and oil. You're talking about elections. But it's still a good time to be invested We still have good companies, um, you know, that are stronger than ever, Uh, you know, during this, um, you know, as interest rates have climbed, companies that have survived, uh, you know, without needing free money, uh, you know, are actually stronger. They have much better fundamentals and it's in a much better place to be. So um, so like we said, yeah, it's still a good time to be invested.
2: Yeah, I think, Wendy, a lot of it circles back to having a plan right? If you know, when you need that money, you can invest appropriately. Like I joked about going to the grocery store, you know, we don't want to invest with the timeline of a week or less. That's certainly not healthy. But working with a planner, you know, like we work with our clients to set up a structure to their plan to know when they're going to be tapping into that money can help them wait out those bad years in the market, and also be making sure that they're taking advantage of the good years in the market.
1: Okay. Sounds good, guys. Any closing remarks?
2: Pete had pulled a Warren Buffett quote, and I'm just going to steal this right out of your mouth, Pete. So I'll <laughs> just reel it in here, but it, it, it's a great one. So it's to invest successfully over a lifetime does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights or inside information. What's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. So we can help you with the framework and we can help you manage those emotions over time. That's our job as an advisor. Now, it's very easy to lose confidence when the market's down, right? That's a very natural reaction. If something's not working, we wanna stop doing it, right? But what we know is that the appropriate framework can help us stay invested even in those troubling times.
1: Sounds good, guys. Okay, so Josh, how can someone get in touch with you if they have some questions?
2: Yep, they can reach out to me by emailing me at jleonard at com. They can email Pete at pete at leonardadvisorygroup.com. They can give us a call at our office at 412-998-PLAN or check us out on our website at leonardadvisorygroup.com.
1: Okay, well, thank you guys. And thank you for listening today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell.
0: Thank you for listening to the Relax, It's Retirement Podcast, the show that helps you transition into a happy, fun, and intentional retirement. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.leonardadvisorygroup.com or give us a call at 412-998-PLAN. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Leonard Advisory Group, LLC. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service professionals with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.